This is Beth Butler, and thank you for listening to From the Ground Up, where we chat with people in and around the real estate industry. I have been in the real estate business for 35 years, and much of my experience has been about building the business from the ground up. And I'm pleased to share some of the people who I've met along the way and who have helped me build in this podcast. Welcome to Farm the Ground Up podcast. Today, I am pleased to say we're going to talk about design impacts from COVID with Joel Dixon of Compass. Joel has advised on all aspects of new development, planning, programming, and design construction at Compass. Bringing a market-driven approach to the practice, he provides highly tailored recommendations that aim to elevate project design, maximize project marketability, and increase developer slash investor returns. Prior to joining Compass, Joel specialized in high-end hospitality and multifamily residential architecture, where he drove the design of nearly 2 million square feet of development throughout the East Coast, China, and Southeast Asia. He is passionate about design and development. Joel has also taught courses at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and Boston Architecture College. Welcome to From the Ground Up, Joel. Thank you, Beth. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here today. Also, I appreciate the warm intro. You're welcome. And I love working with you. And I hope we get a chance in this time we have the other day to share with everybody that listens why you're so good at what you do and why this is such a value add for Compass. So with that, what led you to come to Compass? Well, in 2016, I was still in Boston working for a commercial architecture firm, Arrow Street, and we were pitching a new project. It was Boston's first ultra-luxury rental project, um, or at least something of the type. We weren't experts in that. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that we really didn't know how you know ultra-luxury condo or rental buyers or leasers live. So I reached out to friends of mine who had recently started as agents, founding agents at Compass Boston. And I asked if they'd be interested in consulting. And they said, sure, but we think that you'd be better suited with, you know, someone from our new development team. So they put me in touch with Justin Diodamo, who is now the head of uh, new development nationally, as you well know, Beth. And, you know, I had a conversation with Justin. He, you know, told us what we sort of wanted to hear and hoped to hear. And we agreed to sort of build a partnership moving forward the next day, I sent him my resume, interested in moving to the development side of things, and asked if he'd passed along to some of his clients. And he said, sure, but I have a role that I think you might be interested in. And he sent me the the um, position description, and it was like it was written for me. So, you know, it's pretty cool, but it, the rest of it's really been history from there. And that's how I how I ended up seven interviews later. <laughs> well, that's not that's not that many. I mean, seven's not too much. <laughs> right. It can always be worse, for sure. I've heard of uh, more horror stories at Compass, uh, at least for the interview process. <laughs> It, that was pretty quick, actually. So can you briefly describe what you do for Compass Development Marketing Group? I think in its simplest form, it's easiest to say that I kind of act as the liaison between the design team and the developer. You know, it is planning and design's job to advise our clients, just as you said earlier, really on every facet of design to ensure that our projects are as marketable as possible, you know, that we're maintaining the integrity of the design when value engineering decisions are being made, you know, and that we're, you know, influencing and encouraging the architect, you know, to make decisions 
that retain all of that, but will also still maximize investor returns. And so what does that mean? Well, it, ideally, it's getting involved from day one and helping the, the development team select an architect and a design team that is there to add capital to a project. So what do we mean by that? Well, it depends on the market and the type of project, but there are obviously design teams that are better at doing certain things than others, better at certain types of projects, better at certain scopes, scales. So it's pairing them up with the right team um, to produce the right product. And then overseeing the process from concept, you know, everything from how many units would be in a building to the size, to the layout, to the positioning or the blocking of those residences within the larger building or within a larger master plan. Um, and then getting into the details, laying out the homes, laying out the entry sequence and things like lobbies and back of house spaces, you know, advising on finishes, fixtures, features, things that buyers notice um, that maybe perhaps the, the architect or the interior design team may not be thinking about um, their importance to buyers and more specific nuances that are different in each market. You know, it's just making sure that we're you know, looking at the way that people live and that we're then communicating that back to the larger team to ensure that ultimately it's a product that we can sell, we can lease, everyone's happy with. What does that look like in a meeting with an architect? Like if, if you've selected the architect and you go in, I mean, are you involved in blocking and floor plan modifications? Do you work with the people that are doing the models? Do you work on lobby design? Just like go into some of the intricacies of what you do on a day-to-day basis when you're working with the developer client. Well, I should start by saying that every project is different and that while we do like to get in from the, the beginning, we don't always have that luxury. Developers will bring us on when they want to bring us on. So sometimes that means, you know, my day is spent working on a model residence and working with the team to try and strategize, either selecting the right designer for the model residence, um, working with them to understand how it's going to be furnished and finished, um, everything to reviewing photography to make sure that it's representing the space how it should be, you know, that could be one day. Um, and next day could be spending a whole day in a design meeting, working through floor plans with the architect and doing a very sort of hands-on and collaborative and iterative process where, you know, I make some initial concept recommendations and that's passed off to them. Maybe we're reviewing it in real time. They're drafting their response to mine. And then we're reviewing that again, maybe in real time until we get something that is just perfect and is really just right. Um, you know, other times it's being on site. It's, you know, again, working with the design team whenever the building is opening to ensure that, you know, everything that, that my punch list is being met, which often may differ from that of the developer or the architect, um, model installations being on site and present for that. Same with, again, photography, you know, working with our marketing uh, experts to make sure that the product is being represented in a way that is sort of... Uh, integral to the design itself. At the beginning of quarantine, probably 30 days in, we did start to realize that people were looking for changes or we were going to recommend changes to specific floor plans of condominiums and houses. What kind of initially, what kind of recommendations were you making about changes to incorporate this idea of quarantine and COVID? This is a great question, and it's it's interesting to to step back and look at the comments and recommendations we're making at the very beginning versus today. At the beginning, I think so much of what we were discussing was just really in, you know driven by fear, 
and driven by a lack of understanding. So things like antimicrobial surfaces, you know, there was a lot of discussion of like even projects that are um, way into development or way into construction. Are there ways that we can sort of incorporate those sorts of things? Um, Any surfaces that are easy to sanitize, we were recommending that those be installed in places like foyers to create like a Japanese inspired entryway with clearly defined spaces where elements Um, where residents can shed their shoes, keys, jackets, and then be able to spray it down and disinfect it. Um, When projects had a little bit more time or they're in pre-development, we were really recommending things like mudrooms or drop zones, which are, you know, little, little small rooms where most single family homes, that's where owner homeowners store their Costco goods, you know, their bulk items. This is where kids take off their shoes as they're coming home from school or if they've been playing out outside. These spaces are pretty utilitarian, but they're the perfect place to disinfect. So we were advising developers to rethink those spaces to be used as you know, a place where you could Lysol a new package down, something like that. Also, home offices. I mean, this just became a necessity And I think that that's something we're definitely not going to see go anywhere, but really finding spaces within an existing floor plan where you could put a desk. Um, A lot of times closets we were recommending be retrofitted with a power outlet as well as um, cable or like a cat seven or a cat six internet connection and then lighting um, various types with our overhead or some sort of task lighting to be used as a alternate to a home office for, you know, homes that didn't have it. So that was definitely something that we were um, recommending from the beginning. And then, you know, indoor outdoor connectivity. I think that is a huge one. Also, you know, people want to be outside as much as they can and reasonably so. So when we had opportunities to introduce outdoor space to a project, we pushed for it very hard. And when we didn't, if there was at least an opportunity to edit or adjust or modify the exterior to create, you know, Juliet balconies or, you know, sliding or telescoping glass walls and doors, we were asking for that. Another thing that we were really paying a lot of attention to were amenities and sort of in our larger multifamily projects, thinking a lot about how people would use these common spaces in this sort of post-COVID era. And I think there's a lot of debate initially. I think most developers and designers, a lot of them that we spoke to, they were kind of split on how they felt amenities would evolve. A lot felt that people wouldn't use them anymore, that they were rendered obsolete because no one felt really comfortable sharing spaces. I personally, and I think that most of us on the Compass team felt that, in fact, the opposite, amenities would become more important. They would just need to be designed a little more strategically. And why is that? Well, if people are spending more time at home, they want a place that they can escape. They want a place that they can you know, work out or work, even if you know restrictions are sort of tempered down and eventually you can get out and use spaces, there's still going to be a work from home component. And so it's great to have amenities that can support that. So we're advising our developers to really focus on spaces like co-working, Um, rooms where you can create instead of just this open floor plan let's think about how we can break this up into smaller spaces with offices conference room breakout niches you know bank hit tables little modern cubicles zoom rooms where these like small sound isolated rooms for one to you know four or six people where a resident can go and take a call you know and advising on how those spaces would be finished you know using 
wood veneer paneling that can be really, or wallpaper that can be really easily cleaned up, something that creates like warm library-like atmosphere. Maybe it has a drop-down screen. Those are the kind of things that we were, we were talking about. You know, also residential lounges. Again, these are going to be an extension of people's homes and maybe they won't be used with multiple residents in at once, but at least, you know, they can be rented out. And ultimately, again, we do think that those spaces would continue to be valuable. And then also really thinking about, you know, the outside and how outdoor, you know, outdoor shared space would be utilized, providing little pocket gardens, like little small private spaces or semi-private spaces that feel like these little sanctuaries for residents who don't have their own outdoor space can go into a shared outdoor area and, you know, maybe pull out their laptop and work for a little bit. Hope, perhaps it even has a power outlet and Wi-Fi and maybe even task lighting. There's all these sort of nuances and little details that um, I think we were really kind of thinking specifically of like how the, how the virus is going to change things. I think, again, a lot of those would stay, but most definitely, I think a lot have also evolved. So, Joel, thank you for talking about all the changes we talked about or you were recommending at the beginning. Uh, it sounds like, and I like antimicrobial services, right? Nobody's talking about that anymore. So how did some of those early suggestions now become trends and things that you're recommending when projects start out from the ground up, so to speak? Well, I think that's one important sort of distinction I alluded to this earlier is that we have these initial pandemic fear-inspired trends. And I think that those, as we've discussed, will wane. But the trends that noticeably improve residential life, those are the ones that are here to stay. So what do I mean by that? And one important um, trend that I didn't mention in the previous round is technology. This is huge. And I think all of the, the whole COVID experience has just accelerated the use of technology in our homes and for many purposes, not just for work, but, you know, things like, you know, increased control over lighting and having a variety of fixtures set at different heights for different functions, um, enhanced infrastructure. Everybody has upgraded their internet speeds, you know, to be able to work from home, but also things like in your kitchen, having smart kitchens with voice activated controls, voice activated elevators, you know, self-controlled entries, gesture-based technology. We're seeing a lot of this. And I do think a lot of that is here to stay because the longer it's around, the less expensive it gets and the better it gets. And when it comes to, you know, more spatial um, trends, I think what we're seeing is two different things. At the heart of it is functional home design that focuses on comfort, convenience, flexibility, and then ultimately, at the end of the day, aesthetic as well. These are going to be how I think the, the crux of how everybody is designing their homes moving forward. And I think there's really two pro approaches here. We have one, which is a open plan concept, floor plan concept with an open kitchen and a great room with some spatial flexibility introduced. So what does that mean? So that could be, you know, anything from, you know, having robotic furniture systems that are able to move walls. So you're able to create, you know, an exercise room at one moment of the day, an office at another moment of the day, you know, and then a smaller sitting area at another. That's, you know, one that's sort of like on the, the I would say extreme side of it, but you also have, you know, the desire to create, you know, flexible spaces with the use of like pocket doors and different sort of types of temporary partitions. I think we'll definitely see that. I think we're also going to see, and we've, this has already been the case, um, 
a return to pre-war inspired layouts with more defined spaces. Again, you know, there's a sort of procession and a hierarchy of space and pre-war layouts. And these have always been attractive at certain price points for very specific buyers. But I think that they're, they've now become of interest, again, to a wider pool of people. And I think that we will see that stay. Um, the home office, I think, is also a feature that is definitely here to stay. The way that it's evolved from the beginning of the pandemic, I think we all thought of it as a space that could just be put anywhere. But as we're in our home offices or, you know, niche or desk for eight hours or more at a time, you realize that there are things like natural lighting that really and, and just having good, you know, lighting that are really integral and important in having a nice place, a nice seat and a nice desk that's ergonomic. Those are all little details and nuances that maybe we weren't talking about in the beginning, but they're going to be important. So I think the home office is going to take a, a very much more integral part of laying out homes. And I think giving it a window is something that's going to be also important. Outdoor living and thinking about how people live outdoors, this is also going to be here to stay. Um, you know, creating, whether it's adding a little space for, or a little um, fire pit, electrical fire pit to create a more kind of warm outdoor space, laying it out like a living room, adding features like rugs, and then again, flexibility to open and close off to the interior space. Entryways, again, I mentioned that a little bit earlier on in the discussion. I think that the way that we treat foyers and think of them like, will also stay. Um, those features like mud rooms, when you have the space, that's definitely going to be something that's uh, incorporated. And then I think also spaces that have always kind of been part of luxury residential design, like master suite sitting rooms. These are have always been there, but are spaces that no one's used. And now we see buyers and homeowners actually using these spaces, but using them for different purposes. So, you know, when it comes down to, you know, the trends that are here to stay, it really comes down, like I said, technology, function, and then just having extra space to use how you want. Everything you said is so right on. I say I have a sitting room in my master bedroom. I rarely used it before, uh, you know, before COVID. I use it every day now. I love sitting in there and looking like I, I move around the spaces in my house much more than I did before because I'm uh, not able to go out of the house. I think fundamentally is what it comes down to. You use yeah. more of your house when you don't have any choice but to stay in your house. So I think that what you said makes a lot of sense. And I get a lot of the things for home design. But first, let's kind of talk about condos. You and I both work in a lot of uh, high-rise condominium projects. And so with that, what can you do? I understand if you've got a 6,000 square foot house you can work with, but what do you do? What changes do you see that are more on trend now for you know, a 1,500 square foot condominium? I, the big part of this is just very intelligent, smart design. It's getting an architect and interior designer and then maybe a consultant like myself, working together to think about how every corner of every room can be utilized in a way that is functional for a variety of purposes. Millwork, you're going to see millwork increasingly delivered. I think that that's not just um, a marketing feature anymore or an upgrade, but it's a necessity, especially when you have these smaller spaces where you have to carve out 
uh, places for you to do things, carve out space for a desk, carve out space for a pantry in your kitchen. Now that, you know, people are making, homeowners are making less trips to the, to the grocery store, um, you know, integrating technology, that's going to be a huge part since it does not require space. And then also, you know, going back to this idea of flexibility and adaptability, um, I really do think that you're going to see an increase in use of modular systems that can adapt departments to support a range of activities. I don't think everybody's going to be, you know, moving to a robotic furniture, but I do certainly think that to the extent that we can subdivide spaces through the use of pocket doors or, you know, mobile partitions or a series of adjustable walls and screens to segment an open plan apartment into various dedicated spaces, there's value there and people are using it and we're going to see them continue to use it. Um, so at a high level, I'd say that's sort of what's what will be important for, you know, condos and, and the, in, the interiors of condos when it comes to the rest of the building and common areas and shared spaces like amenities. Again, kind of going back to a lot of the initial concepts that we discussed, um, people are going to continue to use amenities. And I think in a way they're going to be using them more, but they're going to be using them with very clear function and purpose. And we need to make sure that they, that the amenities are delivered with the features that enable residents to do all those functions in their workday that they used to do at the office or that they used to do at the gym that they, you know, would go to, um, that they used to do at dinner or a social club. How are we taking these experiences that people have on a day-to-day basis before COVID and bringing them into a singular space or a singular building? I think that's that's a good way of thinking about it. And I think that's also probably the best way to identify and determine what trends are here to stay and which ones will you know, kind of fade away. So let's kind of, you know, walk up and and take this sort of from like just through the entire condominium experience. So are there any changes or can you think of any trends now in arrival space? Is it, is a trend more towards valet? Is it more towards self-parking? Both, but I'd say a lot of people right now prefer to drive their car in and then park it themselves. They're getting out, they're using a secondary entrance unless they have the need to go ahead and pick up a package or or check their mail. In that case, you're seeing lobbies being retrofit to create sort of disinfectant zones in package rooms um, where, you know, they're disinfecting packages with ultraviolet rays or sometimes, you know, you know, a more uh, utilitarian cleaning product. But those are things that are happening now. Sometimes they're doing it in the open when space isn't there. And other times they're repurposing other sort of back of house spaces for that. Next, you see, as you kind of go in, when residents live on in buildings with lower floors, uh, sorry, not not many floors, you're seeing them take the stairs more. There's this, obviously, a little bit of a fear of elevators, I think, for a lot of people. Um, well-run buildings that have established elevator policies, uh, a lot of times what you'll see is they'll have floor markers that um, identify where to stand in case there's multiple people to ensure their social distancing. A lot of them have actually retrofitted um, elevators to make them Keyless, so whether it's voice activations or if it's even something you can do on your phone, we've seen that pop up. As a resident gets up to their floor and goes to their directly to their apartment, if they have the luxury of getting packages delivered directly, um, you know, I can see most of them taking them into the their home and putting them into their foyer, which 
at this point is probably the same as it was before, but maybe now instead of having, you know, a rug down, they may not have anything so they can be sort of easily sanitized. And inside the home, I imagine. Wait, wait, again, wait. Can I, have, can I back up? What about yep. keyless entry? Sure. Keyless entry? Is it? Definitely keyless entry. Sort of. Exactly. I think that that's definitely something that we have seen um, developers retrofit buildings, existing buildings with and new construction for sure. Um, that is definitely a feature that's available. Um, inside the home, I think the, you know, the, the couple takeaways are, you know, you have living rooms that have been uh, adapted to fit the varying needs of the day. Um, I'm sure you see what either was a closet turned into a home office or a little desk, a little niche that, you know, once stored a piece of furniture has now turned into the desk, or maybe there's a desk located in front of a living room window that used to have just a sitting chair. I think that's probably the, the big one there. Um, I imagine a lot of homeowners have, you know, bought, purchased new furniture that fits their specific needs. Well, and, and I guess with specific to, to furniture. So has the trend been away from fabric furniture? Is it moving towards, you know, more easily sanitized type of, you know, furniture like leather or vinyl or wood alone? Have you seen any of that in the interiors? Initially, yes, we saw a lot of interest in, um, Outdoor fabrics that could be and even bleachable fabrics, fabrics that can be easily cleaned. I think now that we understand how this virus is transferred and, and you know passed on between humans, there is less fear of surfaces. I also think that people think of while yes, there is a fear of the virus and a fear and, and, and a desire to be able to easily sanitize. We're also talking about people's homes and comfort and convenience are also really, really paramount elements in decision-making. But I think that in terms of trends that we're seeing with furniture, really, I think it comes down to more about flexibility and comfort and uh, than it does with, you know, finishes that can be easily or quickly sanitized. Okay. I, I think that that's good. And then last part of the condo. So balconies and I- individual outdoor space, like this is a conversation that I'm having repeatedly with the developers I'm talking to that are in the pre-development phase, right? How important is outdoor space? Can we get by with, just, with an eight foot balcony? Um, wh- what what are you seeing on, you know, a more national level? Is, is balcony space an outdoor space that much more important? It has never been more important. And there is no differentiator in condo development that is more critical to the success of a project right now. And we're seeing this in every single market, but especially the markets that have been hit really hard. In New York, if you don't have access to outdoor space, you are having to dis- deeply, deeply discount your product in order to get it off the market. Um, any outdoor space is better than none. Even simply having a Juliet balcony or the ability to open up into exterior you know, windows or doors full height to create the illusion of indoor-outdoor connectivity, that's a huge bonus. Uh, but obviously, having livable outdoor space like a balcony or a terrace is ideal. The, the desire right now is to not just be able to put a chair out there, but to create an outdoor living room. And to do that effectively, you really need a depth of nine to 10 feet. So this is what we are asking all of our developer clients, particularly on the high end where, you know, buyers are coming from smaller uh, residences and 
wanting to upgrade into something bigger, we are really, really pushing this minimum dimension because it allows you to fit a dining room table or allows you to fit a living room and have a little electric fire pit outside or, you know, even putting like a lounge chair. It just gives you flexibility that you wouldn't otherwise have so people can do things outside. I think that that I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a really critical point. Well, it's like I said, it's coming up in almost every conversation we're having and to the point now where we have been requested on more than one occasion to break out in a pricing model price uh, balcony square footage or outdoor square footage if you want to call it patio whatever uh, terrace patio balcony square footage from the interior square footage and actually give it a price per square foot which we've never really done before. I mean, we look at no. the, we look at the square footage of the interior and then we add a premium for the balcony space, right? A bigger, a bigger balcony gets a bigger premium, but I've never broken it out like that. So we've been like asked on more than one occasion. It's coming up now with every discussion we're having. So we're literally going back to all of our comp sets and breaking out the interior and the exterior square footage so that we can try to assign a value to it. I mean, it's kind of random at first, but I guess once you start getting the database rolling, it will be easier for us to keep up with it, but it is important. And I'm going to ask you the question that I get asked, is it worth minimizing the interior square foot by a foot by 12 to 18 inches to maximize balcony space? The short answer is <laughs> we need to ensure that the living room and that the dimensions that are provided in the living spaces suit all the interior living needs first. If there is extra space available, yes, definitely give it to the outdoor space. But if we're working with small de- depths, living room depths, you know, say, I don't know, 10 feet, 12 feet, like that's tiny. I wouldn't want to give that up. You know, it's still, you're still living, spending most of your time inside. But if the space is available while you're reducing the interior square footage, absolutely. You're increasing, you know, the, uh, your ability to furnish a functional outdoor space. And I guess to step back now to amenities for, for, for just a minute in these buildings, and we're seeing some different types of amenities pop up, which is, which is great. But, but what about the, the fit and furnishing? furniture fitting inside of some of the more traditional spaces. Like I've been reading more about, you know, outfitting things instead of with couches, do pods of four, trying to create a little bit smaller groupings as opposed to like one just big giant room. Are you seeing things like that? A hundred percent. I think, and we've, we've seen this with a lot of developers who have spent, took the time during shutdowns to completely upgrade their amenity spaces and not so much from a, you know, a hard, upgrade, but more of the soft features like furnishings to create smaller sitting areas um, that can, that have varying degrees of privacy. That is absolutely something that I think is here to stay. Something that in choosing furniture that can be arranged in smaller settings, but also, you know, larger should the need arise. So, you know, dining tables that can be broken down that have leaves or rectangular dining tables that can simply be put together. Um, you know, thinking about instead of doing large sectional sofas, having really, really comfortable, um, very like large and oversized sitting chairs that could be sort of stacked next to each other, like as you see and frequently in screening rooms, you know, we're seeing a little bit of a return to the, the individual um, 
an individual's use and less of these amenity spaces being used for large functions and entertainment. I shouldn't say less. It's just that's no, no longer the exclusive use or the exclusive, the idea of the exclusive use of the space. In fitness centers, uh, you're seeing, um, and quite successfully, um, just features that are whether you're separating your furniture, your, excuse me, your equipment by six feet, or you're introducing glass screens, people are still using the spaces. Again, space is premium. So when you don't have it, I think there's a lot of retrofitting options that you, you can use. Or I think another thing that we're seeing is just um, developers working with operations to limit the number of residents who are able to use certain amenity spaces. And that's also been an effective uh, approach going more towards single family homes. So what advice would you give to an existing single family home owner about things they can do to be proactive about taking your home to market? In other words, understanding that the way people are looking at things is a little bit different. Are there things that can that you would recommend that would be done by an individual homeowner before putting their property on the market? Yeah, I, I think what anchors this conversation is if you can, as a, a seller, think about what would make a prospective buyer such as yourself feel safe and comforted in your home, I think you're on the right track. What does that mean? I mean, it's going to be different for everybody, but I think there's a very uh, there are a set of you know steps that you can take. I think there's the first and foremost, everybody wants a light and bright home, and we want to ensure that all spaces now have access to light. So, you know, using technology to allow, to provide an additional level and layer of control for things like lighting, for things like um, home sound and automation, HVAC. I think that's an upgrade that is, you know, worth making. If there are infrastructure upgrades that you can make to support those te- technology upgrades, definitely do those. Um, also, thinking about you know one trend that we have seen that uh, is a departure from the cool colors and hues that have been um, sort of prevalent everywhere in design for the last couple of years and a return to more warmer, softer, more comforting colors and hues. And I, and I think that this gravitation towards this warmer p- colors with this pinkish undertone is actually kind of comforting to buyers. So I'd encourage someone who's, you know, repainting their home to choose paints like Farron Ball, Slipper Satin or Wimborne White, as opposed to like a cool gray or something that we, you know, have seen in the past. You know, it, it, for your entryways, make sure that all of your spaces are clean. If there's an opportunity or if you're thinking about replacing floors, don't replace your, your flooring with with carpet, definitely do wood floors or you know porcelain tile in, in certain spaces. I think there's a lot of value there and that, that's well received. And then the way that you stage is going to be really critical. You know, if you have an extra bedroom that's being used as a bedroom, stage it as an office. Or if you have two, you know, you can do potentially even both. So you have perhaps a his and a hers. If you don't have that space, but you have abundant closet space, Put a desk in there. Let let buyers know that they have flexibility and that your home has the flexibility and, and the ability to, you know, evolve and, and sort of be shaped to their needs. Yeah, I guess the other thing that I've heard they thought was a great idea just kind of on the street that people are, are really looking at or appreciative is that work from home space 
for kids that are doing remote learning, right? Separate pods. They really can't, Huge. they really can't do it in their own bedroom necessarily. Sometimes the bedrooms are small. So being able to kind of carve out that space, if you have that, right, you know, maybe one of your extra bedrooms, if, if, if you can't make it in or you want to set that up as the sort of school room or whatever, it's just another, it's another way, I guess, to show the versatility of spaces to accommodate the changing needs of today today's consumer because it, it really is different. Who would have thought that you had to have a place for your kids to sit seven or eight hours a day to do their schoolwork yes. with an exercise place, <laughs> go by. with an exercise place, go <laughs> by. I, I, I love watching my granddaughters do the PE portion of their day. It's, it's hilarious. So, <laughs> Yep, there you go. See, you can answer the question better than I can. <laughs> no, I just, I just, I just see different. I just see different. You know, to hear different things, right? You talk to real estate agents all day. You really do get a lot of great input and in what's going on. You know, and the day to day things that people are looking for and the challenges they have. And I think you've addressed a lot of that um, really well. So I guess just to go back a little bit, just overall advice that you'd give to a developer that's starting out today. I mean, is it bigger units? Is it smaller units? I mean, give me the top five things that you want to make sure you incorporate into your next project. Oh, this is a great question. Well, first off, I have to say the first piece of advice I would give them is to listen to your marketing and sales representatives. These are your advisors and your consultants. They're the ones who have the connection to the market. They're the ones who know what your the know and understand the nuances of these specific buyers. Engage with them and to better understand the needs. And ultimately that will help inform the design decisions that are made. Stepping back, I think COVID has changed residential behavior, but humans are resilient. And with the exception of virtual work, I think most people want to return to the lives they had before COVID. So I'd caution developers against overreacting or over-designing. You know, buyers at the end of the day are always going to want deals. So it's, I think, really critical that we're very deliberate about, you know, what they're bringing to market and, you know, not delivering super large units that are, you know, out of, totally off in terms of price point. You know, we need to think about the sacrifices that buyers would make. So with that in mind, I'd say, you know, the first thing is the home office. <laughs> There's definitely needs to be a space for this. And again, a lot of this can be, you know, a suggestion of a home office at the end of the day. But if you can fit it with a window, definitely do it. B, definitely think about your entry foyer. If you can, if you have an opportunity to have two entries, strongly encourage it. One acts as a sort of back of house, package drop off, mudroom. The other is a little more formal. But think about how these, what, how these are finished and what features they have. You want to again make these as practical and functional to really give people comfort and with and, and feel comfortable letting people in and out of their home. Um, I think the second thing or the third thing is technology. Again, set up the the residence so that it is maybe doesn't isn't necessarily delivered with all these great technological features, but it is pre-wired, you know, and it has the infrastructure so that a buyer can come in and, and do whatever it is that they need. Four, outdoor living, and this should probably go first, but absolutely do everything that you can to create some indoor-outdoor connectivity and connection. 
And, you know, if in, in, in places where there is not this opportunity, you know, due to restrictions on the type of building or whatnot, it's critical that you provide outdoor space as an amenity and that you're smart about how you do it so that it's not just this open, vast space, but it is outdoor space that's designed for thought for various types of uses and various types and sizes of the parties. And then last I'd say is just really thinking about flexibility and, uh, you know, spatial hierarchy. So if you're designing an open floor concept, which isn't going to go away, design it so that people can subdivide the space as they see fit and as they need. And if you're not, and you're in a market that does appreciate pre-war layouts, then go all out, do it right. And, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that was five, right? Yeah, (laughs) that, that, that was, that's, that was five. And I think that those are good things to hit on. I want for a minute just to go to the super high end, the ultra luxury and talk about anything else. Like if, if, and I don't want to say if money is no object, but if you're gearing towards a very top tier of the market, let's go, let's go all out. What would you do there? I think one thing we haven't really discussed, but is really important are service offerings. I think at the very top of the market, things like IT concierge are more valuable than ever. You know, there's so much technology that's out there. Most buyers don't know what to do to have access to someone who can either do it for you or help maintain or operate a lot of these features and functions is a tremendous value that people and buyers and homeowners really, really appreciate. Second off, I think having a valet closet or a sort of like drop room. So again, this could be a mud room with a service entrance or, you know, a valet, basically a valet door that's next to the entry door that provides a little small drop box for contactless deliveries. Um, Ideally, this is something that could be accessed from both sides. If not, I think it's also fine. Definitely something that we're asking our ultra luxury developers to incorporate into projects. Touchless double dishwasher, touchless appliances to the extent that you can get them, um, you know, in the outdoor spaces, really maximizing them, you know, outdoor kitchens, outdoor living rooms, um, outdoor fireplaces. Accessory units. I think that this is also seeing we're seeing a resurgence of, you know, multifamilies, you know, create a lock off accessory unit if that comes attached to the primary residence or locate, you know, an entry door to an accessory unit off the foyer, perhaps, of, of the primary. This is also a big one that we're seeing a lot of requests for, and we're even seeing buyers do combinations. Um, if you can't have an accessory unit next door, at least, you know, have it on another floor of the of the building. I think this is definitely also something that we're seeing. The high-rise equivalent of a she shed? Is that what we're, <laughs> is that what we're talking about? Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and I think parking. The one thing that I'm starting to see a little bit more of in these in these high in these high-end buildings is requests or to try and build out garages and parking spaces so that people can store things there, put their car in, have an enclosed space. That's that's a great one. We're actually doing that. On, we're currently in the process of um, designing a project in Northern California that has parking space on the floor level that the residence is located on. And so that the parking space is actually a little enclosed garage within the larger parking garage. So again, it kind of serves any function or feature that a buyer would want, um, but it's directly accessible from the residence. So it feels kind of like a single family home. The more we can, the more we can design condo units to feel like single family homes, 
the better off, I think, and the more sellable and the more marketable any residence is going to be. Yeah, I think I think that's great advice. And I love that you brought up the IT concierge. I mean, it, it just gets also to the point that literally with a change in programming, you don't have to do a lot of expensive retrofitting. You can actually just change your programming and it can make a huge difference in how people live their life. And 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 again, even if it's a pay for service, I've seen a lot of people add you know a lot of personal training, one-on-one personal training because the gyms are closed or there's a little bit more less direct no classes. So people are doing more one-on-one offering one-on-one classes. Um, I'm trying to think, I love the idea of the IT concierge, just different programs that they can put in. Somebody was telling me that um, a pod of in one building, a high-end building in New York, they hired private tutors for their kids to be in school. Same thing with a pod of people out, like in the Hamptons, right? A small neighborhood yes. or they, people yep. get together, they hire private tutors. So I think that creativity and solutions are really endless with with what people are coming up with to just be able to hire independent contractor employee do whatever you can't make the modifications physically to create to add people or services that really make a difference in how you live that day-to-day life well said couldn't agree more Joel, any other design trends you're seeing that you want to share with us? I feel like we we, we really kind of captured a lot. I think just a few other little ones that have come up in conversations that we haven't discussed. Um, you know, one of them is, you know, hand washing stations we're seeing introduced around projects. Um, this concept of general hygiene, I do think, has changed in this post-COVID world. And I think a lot of buyers are will remain anxious about buying homes in densely populated areas or multifamily developments. And I think this is a kind of a nice, comforting way of alleviating some of that. And same thing with like cleaning stations. We're seeing this in buildings that are using old pet washing rooms and turning them into basically PPE rooms where they have cleaning products and masks and a bunch of stuff. So if you want to go in there and spray down a package, you're able to do so. Um, you know, interior stairs to, to accommodate, um, you know, circulation within a space. In New York, for example, you can't ha- hold fire doors open. So it makes it more difficult for residents to use the fire stair to circulate. And that what happens is that it ends up pushing people to elevators. So how do we get creative and think around that? I think you're going to see technology introduced that, you know, allows Stair doors to be open, remain open during you know some hours and closed off during others. In larger buildings, mid rise and low rise, you know, designing an open prominent staircase near the elevator core to encourage stair use, things like that. So, I think those are just kind of like a few additional items that were on my list, but I think we kind of hit it all. Thank you. We did hit a lot. I think about, you know, just the things that Amazon is rolling out now, right? So the uh, way to access your garage. Uh, without without having to drop your package at the front door, right? So garage access. So I think that equates equates in a building to a package drop off so that they can drop it off and you can pick it up in one safe space and nobody, you don't really have to interact with somebody if you don't want to. And then I think that, you know, now they're delivering, um, you can order your pharmaceuticals direct from Amazon and they'll deliver them with prime within 24 hours. I mean, that's like amazing. So it's, they always, like I said, the creativity and ingenuity that comes out every day, I'm always amazed, but they also give us good tips of what people 
have been looking for and thinking of. And I think you're right. Just ultimately, people are forever changed for this experience. I mean, that we hope the vaccine comes out and, and we can all sort of forget about some of this come come 2021, early 2021. But the truth of the matter is, I think everybody is going to be a lot more aware of physical space proximity. They, for the most part, everyone I've talked to has really enjoyed spending more time at home. And so that really being able to enjoy your house, people that will now be forever remote, me included, I don't care if I ever go back to an office. I'm very happy now that I have everything set up that I don't really have to go back to an office again. So there are forever changes. And thank you for sharing the things that you think um, are design trends that you see. And I think it's been really helpful. Are you ready for the lightning round? I am ready. Okay. This podcast is called From the Ground Up. So we like to close with a lightning round of questions about you and how you grew from the ground up. Let's do it. Where were you born? Just north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And your birth order? I am the youngest of, well, the fifth out of six. Boys, girls? There are four boys, two girls. Okay. And I'm a twin. Oh, you're a twin. Oh, that's great. What's your academic background? I studied architecture at Clemson University. And I, during that period of time, I did related programs at Fudan University in Shanghai and the Polytechnic University of Catalonia. Okay. And who was your best teacher? Uh, I have two, Susan Dockery at Fort Mill High School and Ray Huff from Clemson's Architecture Center in Charleston. Okay. You're, you just said your college major was architecture. What was your first job in life, not out of college, but in life? I started my own cleaning company when I was 14. Oh my gosh. You were COVID ready at 14. <laughs> yes. I, yes. Actually, that's not, not totally fair. I did start, my first job was at Dairy Queen, but I had a nervous breakdown, blizzing people's blizzards, too much for me to handle. And so I decided to go off on my own and that's where the little entrepreneurial spirit came from. So I have to laugh. So your experience of working at Dairy Queen led you to start a cleaning company? I did. <laughs> Sorry, yes, I, 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 I couldn't help but connect those dots. Um, who, who would you say is your best mentor? Uh, when I was working at Arrow Street, which is an architectural firm in Boston, I was had the privilege of working beneath the now CEO, Amy Corte. She was instrumental in getting me where I am in my career today. That's great. Where do you live and what do you like most about your home? I live in West Hollywood, Los Angeles. Um, and it's a two bedroom and it, the part I love the most is that it has tons and tons of natural light. Yeah. We've got windows on all on three sides and it makes such a big difference. Well, and I think, you know, for, for everybody that doesn't know, you did move from New York recently. Yes. I moved from New York about, uh, two months ago. Yeah. So, so, so you're one of those people that left New York and Florida, we, we, we are coming across lots of people <laughs> that are, that are leaving New York. So, it, so it's good. So you like LA. So far, so good. We've loved it. It's been a, a definitely an upgrade in quality of life. You also did a lot of traveling uh, these last few months. I've admired all the places you've gone and done. So what's your vacation spot, your favorite vacation spot? My favorite vacation spot is anywhere in the mountains, but particularly the Alps. Switzerland is my favorite place on earth. Every time I'm abroad, I always try to make sure, at least in Europe, I always try to make a pit stop and just to see a mountain somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
That's good. I like the mountains too. What do you consider your morning routine? It's kind of pathetic. I wake up, I am have my phone in my hand and I'm lying in bed immediately responding to emails. I make a coffee. I unload the dishwasher and make the bed work for an hour in my underwear and then eventually <laughs> and slowly get dressed before any zoom calls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I liked it when you, we're all very happy that this podcast does not include video. It, it, it's for a reason. Oh, indeed. Yeah. We, we're, we, we are not necessarily <laughs> zoom ready. Thankfully, thankfully. Uh, what do you consider your biggest failure and your best success? My biggest failure has to be spending so much time of my life worrying about what other people think and failing to be present. You know, I think I've probably created enough stress to power a village um, over the years, especially as a, a young boy and early into my teen and then earlier working career. Um, and then my best success at this point has really been landing this job here at Compass. This was my dream job and it still at this point in time is. Um, and you know, I just try to make the most of it each day. Well, and you're, you're amazing at it. You're a great addition to our team. I love, I love working with you. And, uh, last question, what do you, what do you have an aspirational goal? Is there something you'd like to, to do? Yes. I, my dream is to get my PhD in art and architectural history and then to teach at university until I die. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Okay. So so you're going to be a college professor at some point. Yes. Once, you know, you kind of like take a little step back. I think at some point maybe retire or chill for a little few years, but ultimately I definitely want to teach. Um, And I want to do something, teach in something that I'm passionate about, not necessarily something that I spent, you know, my entire career working on. Okay. Uh, no, I think that that's a, that's a wonderful goal. So last but not least, Joel, where can people connect with you? What's the best way for them to reach you? Email, Instagram, Twitter, what works for you? Yeah. Email is, I am always attached to my email. So you can reach me at joel.dixon at compass.com, J-O-E-L dot D-I-X-O-N. LinkedIn or Instagram as well. I am also there. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Joel. You've been a wonderful guest on the podcast and thank you for sharing your knowledge and what you're seeing. And we look forward to you coming back again sometime soon and giving us an update. Oh, thank you, Beth. I had so much fun. I appreciate the opportunity. And as always, love working with you and and conversing with you. This has been a pleasure. Right back at you. This episode of From the Ground Up was sponsored by Feather the Nest, the crowdfunding source for all of your real estate needs. Why register for silverware when you can start your way to owning or renting your own home? Please sign up for your nest at www.featherthenest.com. A special thanks to my extraordinary producer, Sohail Fazludin, who has made this podcast possible.